Good morning. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews. And we're in chapter 13. Yeah, we have made it. Hebrews chapter 13, and this morning we're going to focus on verses 1 through 6. We have been, um, as a church, spending, uh, coming up close on a year now, um, taking our time slowly to examine uh, what God has for us through this letter. Uh, Now we have come to the final chapter uh, where we receive instruction from the author in these verses. Church, let's hear now what God's word says for us this morning. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? May God bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Andrew, maybe you could just turn me down a a notch. I seem a little loud. Um, I have observed a, a trend in the world of online recipes. And this trend I find rather annoying. I'm talking about when you uh, are thinking about making a particular dish and so you, you Google search how to make this dish and you click on one of the pages looking for the instructions and, and what pops up. You get the life story of this person. They reminisce about summers on grandma's porch in South Carolina, sipping lemonade. The page is decorated with with floral borders and pictures of their kids playing in the rain. And frankly, I just don't care. I think, oh, that's nice, but I am just looking for the recipe for buttermilk biscuits. (laughs) Post those pictures on Facebook or something. I just want the list, right? I just want the instructions. Just tell me how to make the thing that I want to make. This, This common thread I find annoying, but recently, I have discovered another thread 
that has popped up on these recipe blogs. There's a button that has been embedded near the top of the page. I love this button. Do you know this button? Jump to the recipe. <laughs> what a gift. This button, jump to the recipe. I no longer have to bite my tongue and scroll down the page. I have this button. This marvelous button is utilized to take us directly to the list of ingredients and the instructions. And, and really, this is, this is a picture. We, we understand this, this is how we approach so many things in life, right? We just want to know what to do. Right? Somebody comes to us with, with a, a, a new diet idea and they begin to explain all of how this thing works. For, and you're just like, all right, just tell me what to eat. Or a new exercise uh, regimen. Just, just tell me the exercise to do. I don't need all the back story. We can approach things in life with this same mindset. We just want the button that says jump to the recipe. And if we're honest... Uh, we can often approach God and our relationship with him in the same way. We can often have this mindset uh, when it comes to uh, the religion portion of our lives that we, we just, we just want to be told what to do. What's the next thing that I need to do to make sense of all of this? And our text this morning, as we come to it, um, it, it can feel a little bit like we've clicked that button. And the author has just given us this list of here's the things to do because that's, that's really what we find in this text. We are, we are given uh, these exhortations, these commands. Here's what to do. Uh, but I, I want us to approach these things and set them properly so that we don't uh, fail to live them out appropriately. We, we need to put we need to put these commands, these, this list of things to do in, in the proper context. We need, we need the backstory. We need the full thing. We need, we need the pictures of kids jumping in puddles. We need all the information because like other things in life, if we don't have the why and the understanding for these things, we will soon fail at living them out. We will soon find, like, like the diet or the exercise regimen, that, that we can't sustain it without a, a good understanding of the why, the context for it. So as we come to this list in these six verses, there are five main categories of, of commands for us. I want us to spend some time setting them in the proper context. So let, let me just give you a roadmap for our message this morning. Uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, first, we're going to properly set these commands, this list, in, in the necessary backstory. Uh, then, we're given these, these five verses, these five big categories of exhortations that are, are what to do. We're going to look at those, um, but we're going to, um, we're going to kind of skim three of them. We're going to take the cliff notes on three of them, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig a little deeper into two of them, um, just because of time and uh, what I think is helpful. And then we're going to conclude with, it, with a crucial component uh, for carrying out these commands for obedience. Okay? 
Okay, so our author, notice now that we've come to this list in chapter 13, right? This is not chapter one, but he has spent much pages and much ink setting up a context for understanding these commands. Our author is deeply concerned with the first century church and and their ability to endure through the culture and context that brings to them many pressures and persecutions. The world around them is pressing in and bringing them all sorts of temptations to abandon the faith. All sorts of reasons why following Jesus really isn't worth it. That's the context in which he writes. And so he is eager that they would be encouraged to endure, to press on in their faith. There is this this pulling tide of the culture around them to let go of this newfound way of life that they have in following Jesus. And the author wants them to know that the morality of the church is a fight of faith that is worth fighting and necessary for persevering in life. That the church together, a group of individuals who have now set their lives to to trust and follow Jesus, comes together and lives out obedient living, and that is necessary for them to persevere because the world around them tempts them again and again and again to bail on the whole thing. It's not worth it. And so he wants to encourage them to press on. And so let's look now at this immediate context. These verses, this list comes following the end of chapter 12 where there was pretty, pretty strong language and stern warning uh, about the judgment of God that comes against those who are not living for his glory and for his holiness. And in chapter 12, verse 28, if you just look a little bit up on your page or scroll up, however you're getting there, verse 28 uh, gives us the context, the immediate context for this list. The author says in 1228, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, that's a kingdom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So, Our text this morning, these these verses, this list, is the answer to the question that comes out of verse 28. What is acceptable worship? What does that look like? That's what our text is answering. It looks like these, these list of things. So how do we, how do we worship God? How do we honor God? How do we please God? That's our verses this morning that we're going to look at. That's the immediate context. And that context in the direct verses around it, that comes at the end of this big explanation that is far grander and far deeper that sets it properly in place. 
If you have been with us through all of these messages, as we have walked through this letter, we have seen again and again this grand argument from chapters 1 through 10 and can be really all summed up with these three words. Jesus is better. That's the grand argument of this letter. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is worth it. The author has written to these Christians telling them that Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant with better promises accomplished through a more perfect tent of a better sacrifice with his precious blood that speaks a better word. All of that must be held in our hands as we ask the question, what is acceptable worship and how do I live these things out? We have to be reminded. This is what it means to please God. And then we have seen in chapter 11 a bunch of examples of individuals who have lived that out. They have lived out lives pleasing to God by what? The chapter said it again and again. By faith, right? By believing, trusting, leaning, staking their whole lives on the reality that Jesus is better. That reality then produces a life that is transformed by that truth. You tracking with me? Okay. This is crucial for us to see because the author even said in chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We must carry with us in our hands all of chapters 1 through 12 as we approach this list of what to do. We cannot just jump to the recipe. We need to have faith in the promises and the reality that Jesus is better in all the ways we have learned through this letter in order to, in order to motivate, in order to transform, in order to make our hearts believe that these commands are good and right and necessary for the glory of God and for our joy. That's the context. When we see that, we get a main point that there is only really, there's only one appropriate response to seeing that Jesus is better and that is to practically live out this acceptable worship with reverence and all. Listen, the, the Christian life, it's a spiritual life, right? It's a spiritual life of faith but that spiritual life of faith it works itself out practically in our lives. Our Christianity does not stop on a Sunday morning when we walk out these doors. Our Christianity gets exposed and spills out on Tuesdays and Wednesdays in kitchens and living rooms and workplaces. It makes a difference in our lives. So how is acceptable worship described in our text. Well, we get a list. What does it look like to please God? What does it look like to offer acceptable worship? It looks like obedient living. An obedient living 
that comes from a genuine love for God and love for others. Back to that question of Jesus. What is the great command, right? Love God and love others. In practical ways, this is what acceptable worship looks like. So let me, let me go through these, these first three verses with kind of the Cliff Notes version. We like Cliff Notes. Most of us owe our high school diplomas to Cliff Notes. First one, verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love is the loving of brothers and sisters, fellow saints, Christians in the church. Brotherly love is, is the ruling dynamic over our lives when we live in God's kingdom. Think back to that verse right before our context. We have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken, right? When we express love for one another in the church, it is expressions of living in the kingdom of God. We fail often to see the eternal weight of daily obedience. This is practical stuff here. I'm talking about uh, just being kind to one another, praying for one another, looking for ways to serve one another, finding where people have needs, bringing over a meal, caring for each other, very practical ways. Don't miss the eternal weight of those things. Those things are eternal realities. They are magnificent in how they are worked because they are things that bring forth the kingdom. And we were told just above that those things cannot be shaken. When you love one another, that cannot be shaken. That's enduring love. And we, we miss it when we think that this brotherly love only means to love those that we get along with. It's like, oh, I can love other Christians when they keep acting like Christians. That's the easy kind of love. But this command to love Brothers and sisters, continue in it is a command to love others even when, even when they're not acting right. Even when we think they don't deserve it. Praise God, he doesn't love us that way. We're called to love one another through our sin, to bear with one another, to care for one another. And when we do that, it, it, is, it is acceptable worship to God. It pleases him. Verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. There's, there's a word play uh, between verse one and two that we don't get in the English, uh, but it's the same word for uh, the, the word love is played in both. So in verse one, you have Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then in verse two, we have Philozenia, stranger love. He's pointing out that to be in the kingdom of God, to offer acceptable worship to God, we love brothers and sisters in the church and we love those outside of the church. We welcome strangers. That's what hospitality is. It's, it's, it's taking the humble position of welcoming outsiders into our lives for them to see 
the love that we have because of what God has done for us. This exhortation is heightened as the writer sharply reminds the readers, do not forget. Be mindful. Make make an intentional decision to not neglect caring for outsiders. I can see this in my own life where there is time that goes by and I have just just let this go without being intentional in my life of where are those outside of the church that I can express love to, that I can welcome, that I can display. Do not neglect this command. And so we would be, we would be foolish, we would miss this exhortation if we didn't leave it asking the question of ourselves, Where am I doing this and how am I doing this? How can I grow in this? What does it look like in my life? And just for added bonus, the author adds this promise or this this little tag to the end of that verse. Maybe some of you have entertained angels unawares. Maybe you had me over for dinner. This is a reminder if the, the first century readers, they would read this and they would, they would be reminded of the story of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, when the strangers come to visit them in Genesis 18, and Abraham shows hospitality to these individuals, which he later finds to be angels, messengers that were sent by God. Is this a possibility for us today? Yes, it is. It's not the main point that the author is trying to make. The main point is sacrificial love and giving of our lives to outsiders to see what kind of love God has produced in us. Verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This command is a a practical loving, a praying for, a considering those who are mistreated. In the context here, there are many who have, because of their faith for following Jesus, have been put in prison, have been mistreated, have been persecuted, and we are called to keep them in heart and mind, to come alongside them in prayer, in love, in care for them. And I, I, I have to comment on this church, Green Tree Church, and your example of doing this and the encouragement that that has been for me. And this past year, when our dear sister in Belarus was thrown in prison because of her standing for her allegiance to Jesus, and the heartbreak that that brought to her husband and those dear to her, this church carried this out. You remembered those in prison. You had compassion. You wept. You prayed. You thought of. You considered. That's acceptable worship to God. It is pleasing to him. May we continue in these things. Okay, 
verses 4 and 5. These we're going to unpack a little more fully. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Honor marriage. Honor marriage. Our, our author embeds this in this list of acceptable worship of what is pleasing to God. And so we have to ask this question. What does that mean? What does it mean to honor marriage? And for those who are not married here this morning, before you check out, let me draw your attention back to verse 4, where it says, let marriage be held in honor among who? All. So you can't take a nap. You're in it with us. The church is exhorted, the whole church is exhorted to honor marriage. In order for us to answer this question of what does it mean to honor marriage, we first need to understand what marriage is and what is it for. What marriage is and what is it for? First, let me give you uh, two things of what marriage isn't. Uh, the first one is uh, your marriage isn't about you. Shocker. The purpose of marriage, if you're married this morning, the purpose of your marriage, it's not about you. It's not ultimately about your wants, your needs, your desires, your satisfaction. It's not about us. Marriage itself becomes a means to an end when we put ourselves as the center of it. This marriage is all about me. And so then the shape and the success of that marriage is hinging upon how I am served by it. But marriage isn't about you. That's not to be the central focus. Whenever we do this with relationship, we make relationship about us, those relationships begin to fail because they're all about our own selfish desires, and that's not what relationships are about. As soon as a marriage fails to live up to, it's all about me, it doesn't uh, come to my satisfactions, then, then it's not really worth upholding and honoring, and it can be cast aside. So marriage isn't about you, and marriage isn't for you. Marriages are, are not partnerships merely for the benefits of those joined together. They're not just good business deals. They're not arrangements that just make sense financially and practically. This marriage, it, it, it just seems to work for us. It just makes our life easier a little bit financially. We can work together to do these things. Uh, she can get what she needs to do and what she wants. I can get what I need to do and I can get done. It's, it's a good partnership. That's not what marriage is about. It's not about you. Marriage is not for you. The design of marriage instituted by God is not about you, is not for you. It is to display this mysterious union between Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. Marriage is a living parable of God's great love for his people. 
It's not about you. It's not for you. It's something God has designed and instituted to capture this amazing reality of God's deep love and affection for his people. Paul in Ephesians 5 speaks of marriage this way. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is for the glory of God. What does the church need most? Have you ever thought about that question? What does our church need most? The church, the the gathering of those who follow Jesus Christ, who come together to encourage, exhort, and press one another on in their following them. What does that gathering, that group of people need most? Friends, we need to consistently and constantly see the glory of God. We need to see the glory of God in one another's lives and in God working in and through us. And so God has gifted us marriage as a living display of his glory. Marriage is meant to be a reminder to the church, to all of us, of God's consistent and abiding love for his people. This is why this institution is commanded to be honored because in this institution we see the glory of God which we need for our lives of ongoing acceptable worship and obedience to God. Marriages are a living drama of the loving relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. So it is to be held in honor. It is to be looked at with respect. This this word honor here is, it's a word that means to consider it precious. The marriages in this local church are precious pictures of the glory of God. I know it doesn't always feel like that. But that's what they are designed to be. They are meant to display who God is for the whole church, for us to be encouraged. And so we are to be a church that honors marriage, that considers it precious, that that prays for the marriages of our church, that seeks to come alongside and encourage the marriages in our church, that, that, that is for the marriages in this church. We need the marriages in this church to live lives that would be pleasing to the Lord. The negative command of this verse is that the marriage bed would be undefiled and God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexual immorality is is the negative side of this because it is what dishonors 
marriage, this institution that God has made. And the author knows, the Holy Spirit knows that we are prone as sinful people, we are prone to misuse what God has given to us as a good gift. Do you know that about ourselves? God is so eager to give us gifts in our lives and we are prone to take those gifts and then misuse the purpose of those things. I mean, these two verses that we're looking at here, verse four and five, sex and money, those are things we misuse. In this broken world, we take the gifts that God has given to us and we misuse them. Here's the point. Sexual intimacy, why is it connected in this verse? Why does he bring it up right there? Because sexual intimacy is not merely physical. We go astray when we begin to think of it that way. Sexual intimacy is not merely physical. When we strip away the fullness of its purpose, we misuse it and we fall into sin and displeasing lives to God. From the beginning, God has instituted marriage as a covenant relationship. Get this now. God has given this gift of marriage as a covenant relationship displayed in the unity between one man and one woman joining together in one flesh. And then God has given sexual intimacy to be the physical display of that spiritual reality of that covenant. Sexual intimacy in marriage is the physical display of a spiritual covenant that God has given. And so... When, when that gift is taken outside of the covenant expression, it defiles marriage. That's the word used. It makes it, makes it impure and unclean. It defiles marriage and it dishonors God. That's what these two words here that come in the last part of this verse, that God will bring judgment against the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Those words are, are the fornicator and the adulterer. Fornication is those taking sexual intimacy outside of marriage when they're not married. And adultery is taking sexual intimacy outside of marriage when you are married. Both of those things defile the covenant. So often, when God was bringing words of judgment to his people in the Old Testament, because they were, were going astray from worshiping God and honoring God and living for God, and they were going after other things, God came to them again and again and called them what? Adulterers. Because they were defiling the covenant that he had made with them by going outside of that relationship for pleasure in other places. God has given the gift of sexual intimacy to be shared in the covenant of marriage as an expression of that beautiful unity. It is a good gift. 
that reminds and strengthens the covenant bond between one man and one woman in marriage. So we are not to defile that. We are not to take it outside of that. This is a vital exhortation that must be taken seriously by all in the church. Because the church is eager to hold to fidelity and unity to Christ. And so we must honor that. If you are single in the church, how are you to honor marriage? Because this verse says all, you're in it. You honor marriage through your prayers for those that are married, through your celebrating the marriages in the church, through your observing the love between a husband and wife, through your steadfast commitment to personal purity. That matters not only for your own life, but for all the souls in the church. How you pursue honoring marriage as a single person in the church strengthens the whole church when you honor God in it. It is pleasing to him and good for us all. Young ones, teenagers, how do you fight against the cultural tide around you that is constantly calling you to dishonor this God-given institution of marriage. It matters, young ones, how you keep this command. You are called to, to pursue deep affection with Jesus over and before what is popular in the world. When all those around you think it's cool to do the whole boyfriend and girlfriend relationships thing and you, you stick with this, I want to know Jesus better and deeper. That matters for the whole church. It strengthens us. The church together honors marriage when we pursue purity in our fellowship in our lives. We honor marriage as acceptable worship. And we do that, it must be connected with reverence and awe. When we are seeing marriage correctly as this, this gift, this, this idea of God's for this demonstration of his sacrificial love, that should stun us. That should leave us in awe and should propel us to keep it as precious and sacred. We cannot treat marriage lightly. We must honor it. For those that are married, you might be sitting there this morning, and you might be thinking, okay, I get what you're saying, but marriage isn't easy. I mean, I, I understand, I get that marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church, but I'm not married to Jesus. Neither is your spouse. Listen, we are all, we're all married to sinners, right? And loving sinners is difficult. It's hard. But we are not alone in this. Because God in his 
kindness has given this institution of marriage and then has placed that institution in the institution of his church, in the fellowship of one another. Marriage, this relationship between one man and one woman, is a relationship set in the context of the community of the local church. We need one another to honor our marriages. I have examples in this church all around me that are a great source of help to me in my marriage. Brothers and sisters that display a marriage that honors Christ and that encourages me, I need to see that. And listen, we are here for each other in that. If you are in a place in your marriage where there is conflict, struggle, it's on the rocks, so to speak, lean into the community of the church. Ask for help. Come alongside another marriage. Pray together in that. Too often I have seen marriages that are so far down the road of hurt and destruction, and if they just would have asked back here for care and love in the fellowship of the church, what would have been honored, preserved, and considered precious. Let's go on. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We'll do this one quicker. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. We have already said that God gives us good gifts and we are prone in our sinful hearts to take a good gift and misuse it for wrong purposes. So how does one keep themselves free from the love of money? This is a question that every follower of Jesus Christ should continually ask themselves. We should constantly be asking, okay, how, how am I keeping myself free from the love of money? And by the way, when we're talking about money here, it's possessions, right? Anything that we can get our hands on and own. How do I protect my soul I can have it in my hands, but how do I keep it from embedding itself in my heart? How do I keep my heart from loving the things, from coveting the things? And this is especially difficult for those who find themselves in abundance. American Christians. Our Christian existence in America is one where we find ourselves in abundance. And you might be quick to say, you need to check my bank account. I don't see abundance there. But we live in a time and place where we have abundance of resources. It's important for us to recognize that the Bible doesn't warn against having things or getting more wealth. It warns against loving those things. When those things are missed used and misplaced and begin to rule our hearts. And it is a more difficult challenge when we have more things and more money. So we must be more diligent to examine our hearts that we do not fall in love with it. 
The more we have, the more diligent we must be. Complacency in this area, it will quickly and quietly take you over. Your deceitful heart will simply excuse it away. It's not enough. Listen, it is not enough to just say, oh, not me. I'm not ruled by things. I'm, I'm easily content with what I have. I don't need more. We can't, we can't be left to statements like that. Unless we intentionally take steps of generosity, we will slowly creep down the path of loving money and failing to be genuinely content. If we fall to those excuses, you will quickly find yourself compromising in this area. What does compromise in this area look like? Well, it can look like uh, being honest, but not completely honest when filing your taxes. Uh, it can look like developing a, in your mind, a reasonable list of why you just need to cut back your giving to the church a little bit, at least for a season. Uh, it may be conveniently forgetting to repay a debt that you owe someone. Quickly justifying why you you can't help when you see a financial need arise around you because, well, because you, got, you got things. If we do not check these things with a question for our souls and a, a call to be generous people, we will fall to the love of money. We must recognize that acceptable worship with reverence and awe in this category, it's not a passive activity. We cannot fall in love with stuff without actively pursuing contentment. If you don't actively pursue contentment, you will be fooled and you will misuse money. Here are some quotes from some wealthy people. I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. J.D. Rockefeller. Uh, millionaires seldom smile. Andrew Carnegie. I was happier doing a mechanic's job. Who do you think that was? Henry Ford. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. King Solomon. See, this is the reality. We take money, things, possessions, good gifts from God, and we misplace them as the source and means of satisfaction for our lives. All of us are tempted in this way. And so we need to fight against that. And here comes the promise in God's word to serve us in that fight. Our author says at the end of verse 5, he reminds us of this promise of God. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. These words reminding us in this battle against finding true satisfaction in things God reminds us that he will never leave us or forsake us. These are the words God gave to Joshua before the people were to enter the promised land, the gift that God had given them. He reminds them that his presence, relationship with him, is the, 
is the answer for contentment in our lives and the antidote for loving possessions. Finding true contentment is seeing this deep relationship with God as your soul-satisfying source. True contentment is not about accruing just enough stuff. True contentment is resting in the promise that God, that he will be yours, that he himself is your possession. The psalmist in Psalm 73 captures this so well. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We must notice that all of these commands get tagged to these promises about our relationship with God. This is the grounds for our obedience. This is how we are to carry ourselves into these commands, to be reminded and to be stunned, to be in awe, to be overwhelmed that God desires deep relationship with us. And that is what serves us as we seek to carry these out. Verse six, we then can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? We come to this list of commands, all of these ways that we can offer acceptable worship to honor God with our lives, and we must remember that God is with us and for us. He is alongside of us. He is our helper. He has promised to be with us in relationship through, through his Son. And how do we say this confidently? Well, he's proven it. He's proven it through the gospel message, through Jesus Christ taking the place of sinners and dying in our place to bring us to relationship with God. And so we can confidently say when we come to all of these commands, though they may be challenging, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper in these, therefore I will go. I will walk. I have this assurance of his steadfast hope, his love, which calls me to honor him with my life in obedient living to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this list of exhortations, these reminding promises of your care and love for us, this call for us to live lives that please you, that offer worship to you. And so we ask for the work of your spirit to help us, to strengthen us and encourage us that we would obey these commands wholeheartedly in ways that please and honor you because it's for your glory and it's for our joy. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.